This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cutmore. We welcome Dan Weaver to the program. How you doing, Dan? Fine, Bob. Thanks. Dan Weaver uh, is a past president of Historic Amsterdam League. He's currently a trustee of the Montgomery County Historical Society, and he writes a local history column for the Amsterdam, New York Recorder newspaper. He sells used and rare books online and also operates a bookstore, the Bookhound Bookstore, on uh, East Main Street in uh, downtown Amsterdam. And his topic today is Phillips Park, uh, working back backwards to the uh, Willoughby patent. What was Phillips Park, Dan? Well, Phillips Park was a park in, located in the town of Florida, across the river from the Cranesville. However, it was up on the hill. It wasn't down on the level. Uh, it was in the town of Florida, but belonged to the city of Amsterdam. It was donated to the city in 1911. It, the city did not really do much with it until the 1930s. And during the Depression, they had uh, some of these uh, groups of unemployed men went there and built uh, shelters and picnic tables, things like that. The Boy Scouts also went there and planted 5,000 trees. So in the 30s, it was developed into this nice park out in the country and a kind of a, uh, not just rural, but kind of a lonely spot at that time on, on Route 5, just off of Route 5, old Route 5S. Um, and it was it was a very popular park in the 30s. There were a lot of family reunions there. Boy Scouts camperals were held there. Mm-hmm. I have a nice picture of Bowler's Brewery. Well, uh, I was going to ask you, I, I know that picture, and I thought yeah. it was at Phillips Park, and I thought, well, in the 30s? Well, I guess after Prohibition was repealed, right, or something right. like that? Right, probably, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there was quite a group of men in the picture, maybe looked like 50, 60, and, and Mr. Bowler himself, Fitzhugh, I think his name was, right. is, is in the picture. So, you know, Phillips Park has a bad image in the sense that you had this murder take place there in 1950, but in the 30s it was, it, it didn't have the image. It, it was a really a wonderful place. The farmers, Montgomery County farmers, had their picnic there, in which a you know there was a congressman and all kinds of politicians were there giving speeches. There were baseball games there, clam bakes, you name it. Mm. But then in the 40s, it seems to have kind of fallen off the map and wasn't so. Uh, use so much anymore for mm. whatever reason. I'm and sure. you you uh, recently did a talk on this at the Hageman Historical Society, and probably going to write about uh, Phillips Park. And you've already uh, you've made reference to the murders. There were two uh, brutal uh, murders at, that took place at uh, Phillips Park, and I believe the year was in 1950. Correct. And that well, you kind of, or, or let me ask you, is is that in a sense what sort of made the park unpopular, just sort of the memory yes. of that? Yes, it just it, that was the demise of the park. Uh, as a matter of fact, within a few days, the city of Amsterdam decided that they had never officially accepted this gift from the Phillips family. They voted to um, cede the park back to the Phillips heirs. The Phillips heirs went up there and put no trespassing signs on the roads going into it, and the park pretty much ceased just right after these, mm. these murders took place in 1950. Now, I've written a, a few years ago a column on the on the murders. There's somebody, uh, the genesis was somebody came to me and said, you know, there were these murders in Phillips Park, and one thing uh, led to another. 
Um, but so tell us the, the the story. What happened there? Well, on October second, nineteen fifty, a Monday morning, um, Mr. Gibbons, his name was he. Charles Gibbons was the superintendent of the Cushing Stone Quarry, which bordered the park. And he went to work, and he saw this car parked in the park. When he left to go home, the par- the car was still there. So he thought maybe I should investigate. So he drove into the park, and he finds the body of a young male next to the running board of the car on the ground and a little distance away with the body of a young woman. And she was uh, unclothed from the waist down. And so he went and called the police. The police came. Uh, They found that the young man had uh, been shot 11 times. The young woman had been shot one time uh, with a 22 caliber weapon and that she had been raped as well as murdered. And uh, from there, the investigation be- uh, uh, began. First was identifying the victims. Uh, the male was w- William Arthur Waterman, who was 18 years old. The female was Jean Lorraine Stone, who was 17. Uh, Jean was from Amsterdam. She lived on, um, uh, well, the name just slipped was, my mind. No, I think it was, anyway, Kate, I think it was Katy Street. Katy Street, 10 Katy Street, which at that time that was called Goat Hill there, by the way. Uh, and he was from Gloversville, but he was living with her family. He had uh, worked a job in Gloversville, and he was looking for a better job. In fact, he was supposed to start a new job that very Monday where, when his body was found. Gene mm. uh, had gone to school up through the ninth grade and then decided to drop out. And they were supposed to be married sometime soon, although they hadn't been formally engaged. Mm. Um, so then the, then the hunt was on for the, for the murderer. Now... They had got the police got all kinds of reports came in of a masked man who had molested people in the park before. He had held people at shotgun, uh, or not necessarily shotgun, but he'd used a gun or rifle to to uh, scare off a man, and then he would rape the woman. Hmm. Now that only one of those cases had actually been reported to the police beforehand, but the one couple where this had happened to had gotten a license number and the police used this license number and they traced the number to a guy in Schenectady whose name was Ernest Stone, no relation to the uh, female victim. And uh, then they were, well, they found that they, they had traced the, their license plate to a rental company who had rented the car out to, to this Ernest Stone. And from then, it was a matter of finding Stone. Hmm. Which, so. which they did. And Stone was African-American, correct? And yes, he was. And the he victims was a World were... World War II veteran. Mm-hmm. And uh, he worked in a junkyard in Schenectady. Uh, he, uh, he lived on South Ferry Street, but he also he had a garage that he rented near the police station in Schenectady. And they found afterwards it was filled with photo- photography equipment, which he on the side, he took pictures of couples at... Um, various like restaurants and dances and things and you know for money he made money doing that on the side but they also found he had a large bank account and they came to the conclusion that he had been taking junk from his employer and selling it to another junk dealer in albany mm-hmm. but anyway uh this there's a camp down in schenectady near the or rotterdam actually near the cobblestone church it's called the Tippecanoe camp and a caretaker there, his name was Miller, 
he, uh, his name was William Miller, he went to check on the camp one day, and the dog that was with him started barking and went over to this platform. And on the platform, underneath the canopy, uh, was just the guy that uh, ended up being indicted for the murder, uh, Ernest Stone. He was there, and he was unconscious. Uh, they took him to the hospital. They found that he was uh, suffering from pneumonia, but that he had also possibly uh, taken an overdose of pills. Mm. And he was in the hospital for several days. Um, but the interesting thing is they didn't arrest him. They they held him as a material witness initially. Mm-hmm. He was held as a material witness with a bail of $100,000. And the story I heard was that that they had a another prisoner who to whom the stone apparently burdened himself with what yes. happened, something like that. Oh well, well he at least confessed to being at the park that night. He admitted, or I should say, he admitted to being the, at the park that night. But when questioned, he he told the story of of a, a guy who had come to Amsterdam. He had met in Amsterdam named Mike. This guy named Mike wanted to go out and meet some girls. So Stone drove him. Uh, Mike was apparently Caucasian. Stone drove Mike, and they just went out to Phillips Park. And Mike got out of the car. Stone stayed in the car. Uh, Stone heard some shots fired. And then he claims that Mike came and at gunpoint forced him to remove the two victims from the car and put them on the ground. That was his story, which, of course, nobody really seemed to accept that story. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, he um, agreed to plead to a, a, a crime that prevented him from getting the death penalty. Right. He he uh, it agreed. He pleaded to guilty to two counts of manslaughter and was sentenced to twenty to forty years at Danamora. Uh, the reason the judge and the DA accepted the plea was. They didn't find the rifle, and uh, there were no witnesses. There were there, they didn't really have any physical evidence to, um, other than the license number that he had been at the park. They didn't have a lot of strong evidence to go after a first degree murder conviction mm-hmm. or or any other murder conviction. So they felt that this was the best way to deal with the with the whole tragedy. Now, when I've been written about this, I never found out whether he was released from prison or, you know, at some point. Right. Do do you know? I'm in the same boat. I I found what I did find is that in 1959, he wrote a letter to the prosecutor saying that he had lied to the prosecutor and that he really was innocent. But the story he had told to the prosecutor was wrong and he wished he had told the true story. And he made a couple, I, I believe he made a couple motions to have his case overturned, but it didn't happen. I have searched and searched and searched and searched and searched to find out what happened to him. Did he die in prison? Uh, was he released? And I have been unable to find, I, I've gone on Ancestry.com to see if I can find anything there. Uh, people have run inmate uh, searches to try to find out what happened to him. And it, it just seems to have disappeared off the face of the earth. Hmm. The thing is, he did have... His family hired a, a good, a pretty good Albany attorney during the trial, mm-hmm. who who brought up a number of things. First, he made he made sure they did a psychiatric exam. Uh, secondly, he also brought up the fact that the entire jury was white, 
Um, he brought up several things, but in the end, it seems like everyone agreed, including Stone himself, to to uh, this uh, manslaughter plea. Hmm. But uh, but after this incident in 1950, you say the park just what is the park today? The park, I believe, is well. Okay, Route 5S going down through across from Cranesville changed dramatically in the end of the 1950s. It used to be the part the Route 5S went down and up over this hill. Now, in the late 50s, they cut Route 5S directly through uh, more on, a, off, on the, next to the river, and they moved the railroad track over. So what's left of the park, if anything, if Cushing Stone hasn't eaten into where the park was, because right. I believe that Cushing Stone ended up with the property eventually, it would be up on what's called Pattersonville Road. The first part of Pattersonville Road was 5S at one time, and mm. that, that, that road was, you know, most of 5S that went up over the hill was abandoned. So Phillips Park was up on the hill overlooking the river, uh, behind, and, and Cushing Stone at that time was, if you were driving towards Schenectady area, Rotterdam, Cushing Stone would have been on your left, not on your right. Oh. And Phillips, Phillips Park would have been on your left. But that area has been so dramatically changed by quarrying, by the various, you know, roads that go go through there, the railroad. You know, at one time the Erie Canal went through there. Uh, Cranesville Block is down there on that Phillips land. It's so dramatically changed that it's hard to even recognize it from the way it used to be. We're talking with Dan Weaver about the history of a plot of land, really. It was called Phillips Park for a good number of years in the 20th century, Uh, but it has more of a history to it, and we'll hear from uh, Dan with that story in just a moment. Want to put in a word for our GoFundMe campaign. That's what keeps the Historian's Podcast on the air. We ask for your donations through GoFundMe. Here's the specific website, gofundme.com forward slash historians2018. If you go there, they explain to you how you can uh, donate uh, using your credit card online. And I'd appreciate a donation very much. If you'd rather not uh, use your credit card on the Internet, you can send a check made out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Thank you very much. Our guest on the Historian's Podcast is Dan Weaver, who writes a column on local history for the Amsterdam New York Recorder, also operates the Bookhound Bookstore in Amsterdam and sells used and rare books online and He is uh, currently a trustee of the Montgomery County Historical Society. We've been talking about Phillips Park, uh, and um, Dan promised to go backwards in time about this plot of land. What uh, what was that plot of land before it was Phillips Park? Well, it was it was the farm that was belonged to the Phillips family, and this whole area was called the Willagee Patton. It was the, to my knowledge, and I've discussed this with Wayne Lemig, uh, this piece of land was the first piece of land west of Schenectady that the Mohawk Indians gave to anyone. 
And the reason they did, it was, I believe, about 266 acres. It could have been a little more, a little less. This piece of land was given to two sisters, the Van Slyke sisters. Uh, I have a hard time pronouncing the one's name because it was Dutch, Hillette J, and her sister, Eva. They were, uh, their mother was Indian, Mohawk Indian. Mm -hmm. So they received this land from the Mohawk Indians, and both of those women were provincial interpreters. They were interpreters for the province of New York, official interpreters, and got paid for doing that. And they married Dutchmen. One married a man named Van Coppernald. Another one married a man named Van Alinda. Now, this land was given to them approximately 1667. Mm. Then in 1689, the Coppernalls sold their land to a guy named uh, Philip Philipse de Moore. And that's where the Phillips family are all descended from him. Oh. And when they bought that land, there was our, in 1689, the deed states there was already a house and barn on the land. So this is the first white settlement west of Schenectady. Often people say that Henrik Fry out in Palatine Ridge, he was the first white settlement uh, west of Schenectady. But Wayne Lennox debunked that a long time ago. And here we have a a deed showing this land being transferred to the uh, Philip, Philip, Philip de Moore in 1689, and already Coppernall had built a house and barn on it and settled there. Mm-hmm. And uh, Wayne Lenning, I should say, he's a historian, uh, an anthropologist, I believe, in terms of education. Archaeologist, and he's associated with the Fort Plain Museum. He's published a number of uh, papers on archaeology, local history, written a book on Fort Plain, the, the fort itself. Where And maybe, did you explain this, or where did the name Willoughby come from? That came from the willows, the willow trees that apparently were there. Part of the Willoughby patent was the willow flats. It was a flat piece of land that now Cranesville Block is sitting on, and there's a smaller piece of flat land uh, to the west of that that still has corn planted on it. A lot of the willow flats have somewhat, been somewhat destroyed. Um, but these flat pieces of land along the Mohawk were very desirable. The Dutch and later settlers really desired them uh, because they were mostly, a lot of times they were already cleared or easy to clear, and they're very fertile pieces of land to, to grow on. And then William Johnson came in 1738 and to take care of his uncle's land, Sir Peter Warren. And, of course, Johnson would go on to become famous in, in Indian affairs and colonial affairs. Their land abutted the willow Patton, the Willoughby, and mm-hmm. uh, Johnson was clearing his uncle's land, and the, and and they did a survey of the Willow Patton, the Willoughby Patton, and Johnson finds out in 1738 he had been clearing the wrong land, <laughs> someone else's land. So anyway, the Phillips family became quite prosperous there, and uh, in 1775, Jacob Phillips reason why I know they were quite prosperous is because Jacob has what we call today mental health issues, and he was declared a lunatic by the Court of Chancery. And his brother and, and nephew had to take over his, uh, his estate for him and run it for him. And in the process, they listed his inventory of all his property and goods, and we find a, he, a listing of six slaves that he owned, uh, several um, brood mares, a stallion, all kinds of animals, buildings, etc. So it was a very uh, prosperous, fertile piece of land. And then, of course, the Erie Canal was run through there, right through their land. And then that area 
became known as Phillips Locks because there were two two canal locks there, the Erie Canal, and they were only about 1,000, 1,200 feet apart. Why they were so close, I'm not sure. But, you know, there was a grocery store there, there were some houses, and then the first Catholic church in the area was established there. Hmm. It was called St. Patrick's. But when they, um, and it, it mostly, the people that mostly attended it were uh, Irish canal workers. Mm-hmm. And then when they broadened and widened the canal, enlarged the canal, that building had to come down, and those people started worshiping in the south side of Amsterdam, which is what's called Port Jackson at the time. And that's how St. Mary's Church in Amsterdam started. So St. Mary's Church in Amsterdam actually actually had a start down at Phillips Locks on the same property, huh. uh, but it was called St. Patrick's at the time. And Actually, Jackie Murphy writes about that a little bit in her history of St. Mary's Parish in, in Amsterdam, New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, and we're talking about um, the land we're talking about is in the t- today in the town of Florida, right. um, south side of the Mohawk River, right? Yeah, basically where Langley Road, uh, uh, Pattersonville Road, down to the other side of uh, where Cushing Stone and Cranesville Block are. It basically in that area we're talking about not just the land, not just the flat land on the river, but the the land up on the hill was also owned by the Phillips family and the Van Alindas. The Van Alindas hung on to their land for a long time after, mm-hmm. even though the uh, Toppernell sold their land to the Phillipses, the Van Alindas held their onto their land for quite some time afterwards. Now, I believe you've also found that there was a free black community located right. there. Can you and talk about that? Mystery. This is a mystery. Um, Sir William Johnson refers to them as the Willoughby Negroes. And uh, they're obviously free blacks because they own the land. They're having the land surveyed. And yet uh, it's very, very difficult to find out who exactly they are. It's possible, and, and this is, going to be difficult, and I know we don't have a lot of time here, so I can't really get into it in detail, but there's some inkling that the reference might actually have to do with the Phillips family, because the first Phillips was Philip Phillips, say, de Moore, which is often in records translated as Philip Phillips the Moor. Now, Moors are from northern Africa. Whether they're actually black or not is another story. But apparently, to Johnson, to William Johnson, he conceived of, of them, whoever these people were, as being black people. Um, if they had Northern African ancestry in them, it was probably only partial, and whatever. At some point, in if if this reference is to the Phillips family, which we can't even be sure, if it's a reference to them, then uh, you know at some point. Uh, not too far past that, they were considered as white people, not uh, not African. So it's it's a very confusing thing. Race is not just a matter of color, uh, because if it w- if it were, um, uh, which brings up a hu- another whole interesting thing, the Phillips the Phillips family is where Sir William Johnson got his first quote unquote wife from, Catherine Weisenberg. Mm-hmm. Two of the Phillips brothers, who were sons of Philip Phillips, they did more. Uh, Harmon and Alexander, they lived down there in the 1700s 
early 1700s, and they had an indentured servant named Catherine Weisenberg. And Sir William Johnson bought her indenture from the Phillips brothers. Mm-hmm. Now, if you read a description of Catherine Weisenberg, written in, in uh, January written in January of 1738 by the captain of the ship who brought her over here, she's described as having dark eyes and brown complexion. Hmm. Yet there's no, there's never been any idea or, or thought that she was other than a Palatine German, even though she had a brown complexion. Now, this, this description is given in January, so it's not a southern tan. She apparently was, had a dark complexion. So why I'm, I'm bringing that all up, uh, other than to bring up one more interesting point about this whole plot of land, is that race is not just a matter of color. No. Uh, so it's possible there was another, there was a family of free blacks living somewhere on the Phillips's land that this might be referring to. If if they if they are there, there's no there's no uh, there's just nothing to indicate that there was just, was another family there. All maps showing the area only show the Phillips family living there. And just one other quick point, there was a Phillips family on the north side of the river, right next to Johnson's property on the north side of the river, when he finally moved over there. And Johnson refers to that owner of that property as one of the one of the brothers of the Moors, M-O-O-R-S. And this brother was related to the Phillips on the Willoughby Patton. Hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's still a mystery to me right. what exactly they mean, who they're re- referring to, but the possibility exists that Sir William Johnson was referring to the Phillips family when he talks about this family hmm. of quote-unquote free blacks. Mm-hmm. And you've been reading quite a bit uh, i see your posts on uh, facebook and so forth of the of johnson's papers uh, right right where do you find those well johnson's papers can be downloaded for free from the internet archives it's completely legal um otherwise you have to buy them on a cd from the new york state education department i believe they charge 20 bucks but it's mm-hmm. searchable and it's worth it's more than worth your while uh, and if you want the books themselves, you can go online and search for them. They're very expensive, though. Generally, a set of Sir William Johnson's papers run about 1000 to $1,200 for all 14 volumes. And then when you have all 14 volumes, you don't exactly have all his papers because some of the other papers right. are scattered in other, other books. And just by way of background, Sir William Johnson uh, was a prominent uh, colonist, uh, originally from Ireland, but he worked for the British and... Um, he wrote a, why did he write so much? Well, he, he, it was part of his work. He was in constant, uh, contact with, uh, all kinds of important people in the colonies and in England, the Lords of Trade over in England, uh, governor of Pennsylvania, Benjamin Franklin's son, writing to him, writing to uh, you know, all the various governors of the various colonies in relation to the Indian affairs, because he was the head of uh, superintendent of Indian affairs in the Northern department for the British crown. So he was a major figure in colonial American history. Also a major figure in the French and Indian war became a baronet because of his heroism and uh, in, in the French and Indian war capturing Baron Descau and Descau was 
was a prisoner in his house and, that he owned in Albany, and, and so he was a very significant colonial American uh, figure. Well, if you want to learn more about the things that Dan's been talking about and other uh, historical matters as well, check out his uh, history column, which runs uh, on Saturdays, right, in the Amsterdam Recorder? Yes, it's uh, every other Saturday in the Amsterdam Recorder. Uh, It won't be this Saturday. It'll be the next one. All right. Well, it'll but every other uh, Saturday. And and Dan is um, trustee of the Montgomery County Historical Society, which operates uh, Fort Johnson, one of the homes of uh, Sir William uh, Johnson in the colonial era. And he also has a bookstore called The Book Hound in downtown Amsterdam. You've been listening to Dan Weaver on the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.